Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a t- is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge, yeah. there's no Patreon, there's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better. Available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And man, we have a great we have a great episode today. Just as Captain Kirk turns to follow the Golden River, a new and awful danger appears. Across the cavern, at the mouth of another cave, a long line of massive monsters appear. These new creatures walk on two gigantic legs as big as tree trunks. Their heads are as big as huge boulders, and their teeth are as big and sharp as axes. Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king of the dinosaurs, the most ferocious and powerful flesh-eating creature Earth has ever known. Holy jumper Jehoshaphat, I knew I should have stayed on the ship. Now will you do it, Captain? Now will you take my suggestion and kill these awful monsters? The brave commander of the Enterprise thought furiously as he watched the immense Tyrannosaurus's line the opposite wall of the cave, roaring their angry displeasure. Should he kill the majestic beasts, as his security man suggested, and mine the rich wealth of the world? Or should he risk their own lives on a desperate hunch? We can't wait any longer. We must... Wait a minute, Captain. Mr. Sulu, you are familiar with the Earth version of this mighty dinosaur? This is no time for a history lesson, Spock. We're in danger of our lives. All in good time, Doctor. Mr. Sulu, answer the question. Yes. Those earthly creatures had short arms and small brains, did they not? Yes, they did, Mr. Spock. Not at all like these animals. Why, why these creatures have long arms, almost human shape, with three jointed claws. 
And their skulls, their skulls are much bigger than the prehistoric Earth Tyrannosaurus. Captain, I submit that these monsters are not monsters at all, but the intelligent life my sensors picked up. That's ridiculous, Spock, even for you. The next thing you'll be telling me is that this golden river we've been following is made of liquid gold. It is. What? What is that? It feels like it's coming from inside my head. It is Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. Both your first officer and medical officer are correct. We, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, are the leading life form on this planet. I, I've been reading this guy since I was a little kid. Yeah, His name has been on Star Trek movie posters, on books, and, and a lot of other great genre stuff. And I've always been fascinated by him. Um, he's the Charles Dickens of novelizations. Um, <laughs> That's fascinating. And uh, he, you know, he's also a very prolific and acclaimed science fiction author. He's yeah. done things like the Humanix uh, Commonwealth uh, uh, books, the Spellsinger uh, trilogy. Um, uh, but but I think that you know uh, he has some great books coming out that we'll talk about. But uh, but I think you know he's 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 at least in genre circles a household word uh, for his uh, work on on movie adaptation. His name has and, been a mark of quality. Uh, on uh, you know science fiction books for a long time, and I remember uh, uh, seeing his name on the uh, the book sequel to Star Wars: Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and remembering his name from the Star Trek log books. And I thought, hey, I know who this guy is. Maybe yeah, this yeah, is going to yeah. be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I was never a fan of the James Blish star trek adaptations of the mm. tv show now they're an interesting curiosity now because of all the stuff from the original script yeah how they differ from the, you know, the, from the episodes the and how they episodes. differ from the script so they're more of a curiosity but the the star trek log series which were alan dean foster's adaptation of the animations were actually really good books yeah, yeah. and and it elevated that those shows that made the animated series better because he was a big Star Trek fan. Blish yeah. wasn't. Blish wasn't a Star Trek fan at right. all. He was doing for me. But, um, but uh, and, you know, his wife ended up f- finishing him after he died. And, right. you know, but, but, but Alan but Foster, Foster was a, was a like, he was a huge fan. Star Trek yeah. fan. He had pitched, you know, episodes of the series, and uh, which, you know, were rejected. But then he ended up using the material in, in, the, in the books. And, you know, it's funny because those books were so successful, so successful. Mm-hmm. When, you know, Judy Dillon, Dillon, uh, Ray says, stop, you know, going through all the with there are only so many episodes stop you know doing three and a, a book we want the last you know sp- spread them out we want to put out as many of these books as we can yeah. and uh, so we're going to talk to alan dean foster obviously about adapting the animated series and 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 why they're so so good and of course how could we not ask him about probably his most famous book which is doesn't have his name on it yeah uh, 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 but uh, but it's it's the worst kept secret in Hollywood that uh, he wrote George Lucas's Star Wars novelization, um, which we all read as kids. Yeah. Um, but you know, and I think you alluded to it. Almost as interesting, if not even more so, is Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah. Because after Star Wars came out, we were so hungry for more Star Wars content, and this wasn't like now. There wasn't a lot there. There was they nothing. Couldn't, they couldn't print the albums quick enough. Yeah. I mean, that's why everybody was buying the knockoffs like Miko and like yeah. uh, music inspired by Star Wars and stuff because they literally were out of print. They could not keep up with demand on the John Williams soundtrack album. And it was the same thing with the toys. Who could forget the early bird? Right. Uh, they couldn't make the toys fast. They didn't enough. have toys and, yet. 
So they were selling empty boxes. So the one thing that we had was this Splinter of the Mind's Eye uh, book, which people didn't know. They thought, oh, this is the next Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Because, of course, the Star Wars novel came out months before the movie. Right. So you're thinking, maybe this is the next Star Wars. And it had, you know, how did Darth Vader become Darth Vader? And I think the thing that I remember most, and I think most people do, is that gorgeous Ralph McQuarrie cover art. Right. right. You know, Darth Vader standing in the lava pool. I mean, just gorgeous. And, um, and, La- and, 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 pool. Which movie did? You, which book did you? No, read? standing in the fog. He's, He's standing, standing in the, in the fog. fog in the forest on this on this with rock. the kyber crystal. Right? Yeah, with with Luke yeah, and Leia sort of kneeling uh, in front. Yeah, uh, about to be stunning. attacked. It's it's, it's great. It's, it's great. It's really, and I mean that oh, just stays with me. Um, so anyway, we're we're going to talk to Alan Dean Foster, and um, it's really you know really great because again it, it's a name that. I've never talked to him before. You know, a lot of people yeah. on the show I, I've, I've interviewed her. I, I know I've never spoken to Alan Dean Foster before. And it's a really good interview. He's, you know, he, he is very candid. He's very honest. He's a great memory. He's everything you want in a, in a guest. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was a real treat for me, I have to say. And I think well, it was for too. you too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's uh, meet uh, Alan Dean Foster. And uh, we'll start by talking about um, where it all began, uh, at least uh, for us, the uh, animated uh, adaptations, the Star Trek logs series. And there wasn't any on television. It was fairly simple. Right. Uh, you gravitated, if you like science fiction, and you watch television, uh, toward what little was available. I actually grew up watching science fiction on TV back in the... Uh, Beginning of television. I remember Rocky Jones, Space Ranger, very clearly, Captain Midnight, although I hated Ovaltine, and <laughs> probably the best of the lot was a show called Science Fiction Theater, which had essentially no budget, but fascinated me as a child and did real science fiction. And then when I got older, of course, there was Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, and then along came Star Trek. So I watched Star Trek. It was wonderful to see. Uh, science fiction stories uh, being told outside the solar system for a change uh, with at least at least uh, honorable attempts to use real science once in a while and uh, so I watched I watched that's how I got into Star Trek I was gonna ask, so it, did you actually pitch uh, the third season of uh, Star Trek because I know ultimately when you were writing the log series um, you based on an original idea you had for uh, Star Trek, that last volume that you had to f- flesh out. Was that something that you were a- actually pitched, or was it just an idea that you noodled when you were watching it? What happened was the original project came from Judy Lynn Del Rey, of course, the editor of Del Rey Books, who had purchased the rights to do both versions of the animated Star Trek, because that was a little hole in the contract that Phantom Books had with Paramount. Apparently nobody uh, thought to mention animated Star Trek along with all the, all the other possible versions, because obviously there never could be such a thing. And lo and behold, there was, and Judy Lynn jumped on it. And I sat in a chair at Paramount in an office and watched her demolish a Paramount lawyer who attempted to say that uh, there, you know, it couldn't get the rights. It was a wonderful thing to watch, and I wish I'd had a cell phone back then. Be that as it may, when I agreed to do it, I found myself uh, facing a bunch of, 
20-minute cartoon strips that had to be adapted, and there was no way, no how, uh, not even outside Federation space, where I could adapt a 20-minute script into a 75,000-word novel. And I told Judy Lynn so, and she said, well, do it however you want. So I had the idea of adapting each episode as a novella. Mm. I thought I could get 20, 25,000 words out of it, and trying to connect the ones I used in each book a little bit so that it would at least read something like a continuous story. And I did that for six volumes of the Star Trek log series. And at that point, I got a call from Judy Lynn saying, from now on, you have to do one screenplay, one teleplay per book. And I replied, I said, if I could have done that, I might have done that from the beginning, but you can't do it. It can't be done. And she said, I don't care how you do it. Just do it. <laughs> the books are selling like crazy, and you have to give four more books out of the last four scripts. Mm. I'm sitting around thinking, and the only thing I could think to do was to do what I had been doing, which was get novella, 20, 25,000 words out of each script, and then do the last two-thirds of the book as an original story. Right. I had one coming up, so I was trying to think of what to do. Well, for the third season, as you mentioned, Mark, I had pitched a two-parter to Norway Productions and Paramount, and it didn't sell, although I got a very nice letter back saying, we really like your story. Please submit for our next season. Of course, there was there was no next season. But I had this 120-page screenplay sitting around. And generally, you can get three pages of prose. Uh, I can get three pages of prose. That's the method I've worked from. Every page of screenplay. Hmm. So there was an easy two-thirds of a book right there. There was a whole book there, actually. But I didn't need a whole book. So that became the last two-thirds of Star Trek Log 7. Mm. And then from then on, I had providentially saved what I thought were three of the very best scripts from the animated series for last, mm. of them being by actual science fiction writers, David Gerald Niven. And that made a difficult job a little bit easier. And then, of course, prior to that, there were the Peter Pan records. Sure, that's right. I actually did get a chance to write original Star Trek. Uh, those have kind of disappeared, but they've been resurrected online, and people can, can at least find and listen to the stories, even if they don't happen to have access to the actual uh, 33 and the third finals. Yeah, people forget that sort of obscure part of Star Trek history, but there was some great work being done there. And then also with the accompanying uh Comic uh, comic books as well. Um, I know Russ Russ Heath did some of the um, comic art that accompanied the uh, the, the records later on. Um, what were the challenges for you in, in in adapting the animated series? Obviously, it was being done for Saturday morning, but y y y to bring a, a sort of more mature, um, more science fiction based uh, approach. Uh, to the log series because I mean the log series really elevated that show I mean which was successful in a lot of ways but I mean th there's a reason that I think the log series is so beloved because it felt like Star Trek and it added depth and a little complexity to, to some of the episodes you know which on paper 
you know, the crew of the Enterprise is shrunk, you know, or, or um, you know, rapidly uh, or turns into children or, you know, uh, has to go to an underwater kingdom. And, and yet you f- seem to find the nuance of it and make it feel very comfortable in Star Trek canon. Thank you. Well, that's that's Hollywood. You just did three story pitches right there. Right. Uh, that's how that's often how it works. Uh, and things like characterization and depth and detail and science and story are, are kind of left for later. The important thing is to sell the story. And the biggest problem for me with the animated series was I love animation. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a big fan of limited animation. And it was limited for reasons of cost. It wasn't the most limited animation on television. That that honor would have to go to a show called Clutch Cargo. For Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing moved, literally, except the characters' mouths. It was, it was basically uh, it was basically a comic strip photograph of television. But as far as the Star Trek logs go, the, the stories, both from a science fiction standpoint and from a story standpoint, were all over the place. They varied from really silly to pretty sophisticated stuff. The characters were there. Uh, so I enjoyed working with real characters. I mean, it was really Captain, really red like Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and everybody else. Uh, another th- fun thing that would that I really enjoyed doing is I love working with aliens. Mm. And on the television, Star Trek also budget limited. What you basically had, except for very very few exceptions, were people in, in funny costumes or rubber masks. And everybody knew it when they were watching the show. You just suspended disbelief for the length of the show. But you didn't for a minute believe they were actually aliens. Whereas in animation, you can do anything you want. You can animate an alien just as easily as you can animate a human. So we got two aliens on the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, one I called an Adoan who had three legs. Right. Mr. Arix. That's right, Mr. Arix. People never carry these things through. I mean, if you're going to have three legs, you should probably, if you're not going to have a bisymmetrical structure, if you're going to have a trisymmetrical structure, then you should have three ears, uh, three ears and maybe three eyes, and maybe three arms, sure. and maybe, well, but without getting too deeply into that. Eric's was fun, but the real fun character for people seemed to have been the character of Imress, Right. who was a feline alien, a very attractive feline alien, and I got to play that quite a bit in the books and have a lot of fun because in a book you don't have budgetary problems you have an unlimited budget and you're writing a story and if you want to blow up three solar systems that you know it's the same number of words on page as, as pretty much anything else so you have an unlimited budget so i really enjoyed working with the characters of them particularly in rest and i was able not only to develop their characters that's really not developed they only existed on the animated Star Trek. There was no previous history on the uh, television Star Trek of those characters. I got to develop them in ways that I enjoyed developing them. And I got to do some things with some of the other characters as well. Make them a little less stiff, and that's not a re- reflection on the animation necessarily. Sure. But again, in 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes less commercials, uh, on Saturday morning, you don't have a lot of time for character development don't have a lot of time for story development it's basically uh well as you said mark you, you go and star trek goes underwater and you see pretty things underwater and underwaterish things happen 
and that's all you got time for. Then it's then it's time for the next half hour show. But even in a novella, as opposed to a novel, you still have a lot more room to play with those things and develop them. Did you, um, was it different when you were dealing with, say, a contemporary peer? When you were adapting Larry Niven, for instance, you know, who, somebody who I presume you have a lot of respect for, do, do you sort of seek out their, their counsel, particularly since the Kazin were from uh, his other work as well? So it's it's sort of you're adapting an adaptation of an adaptation, uh, did, did, or, or you just didn't have the time for stuff like that. No, uh, first of all, it's not a question of time; it's a question of uh, just keeping things flowing. Uh, that was the only adaptation that I was a little leery about doing, because it was not a story that was written specifically for the show. It was, as you say, an adaptation of one of Larry's own previously published stories mm -hmm. and it's one thing to take a screenwriters someone who's written a screenplay or a teleplay and adapted into, into prose form another thing to take a story that was originally in prose form is now being used as a teleplay and throw it back into prose form and if I have when I do something like that which is very rare I try to be as respectful of the original material and the original style as possible because it's me adapting a colleague without the colleague's uh, participation. It's a very touchy kind of thing. But having said that, when you sell a story uh, to the movies or to television or to the theater or to radio, it's gone. Unless you have a specific clause or, or two in your contract that says that you have the right to interject yourself into the story process or into the filming process, then essentially you have no rights. What you have, and the reason people do it, is the right to take a nice check and cash it at the bank. Right. And that's it. And for anybody who ever wants to sell or ever does sell a story to the movies or television, unless you have the power of, say, a Stephen King, uh, you're not going to get that clause. So right. be prepared for that when you're in negotiations to sell your story to... Um, to another medium. And I know that happened with every story as it does in the animated Star Trek, and that means it happened with the story adapted Larry's The Slaver Weapon as well. So I had that kind of put between myself and the original material and say, well, you did this, you sold this story for use on television and the contract, any subsidiary material. Uh, I respect you for doing that. I respect your original material, which I love, by the way. And now I have to go and do my job. It's like someone who builds a house. Let's, let's say you've got a 120-year-old Victorian house and you're ready to sell it. And the buyer is going to change the paint scheme. It's been there for 120 years. It's been painted over and over again. You either sell the house to that person and forget about the paint scheme, or you don't sell the house. Right. When you were going to embark on adapting the log series, were you familiar with what James Blish had done with the original show? And obviously that was a lot different in that he was it was contemporaneous with uh, the production of the show, and he was adapting a lot of uh, the original shooting scripts that then changed, and, you know, whereas you were actually inventing a lot of new material to flesh it out. 
Um, but was that something that you had were familiar with and had any thoughts about prior to accepting the gig? I was familiar with, of course, the uh, James's adaptations. I never read any of them, which was probably a good idea. Hmm. It's just better if you don't do that, uh, unless you feel you need to. I had read reviews and comments of James Blish's adaptation. And they put me off for a little bit. I thought, is this going to be so difficult? And you know, it didn't seem like the kind of approach that I would like, that I wanted to take. I've always taken with film and TV adaptation. I feel if the if the buyer of a book doesn't get at least 50% original material when they buy an adaptation, then there's no point in printing the adaptation. You might just as well print the screenplay and add a few annotations, clarification, and let it go at that. Otherwise, it's kind of a cheat. That's that's just my feeling. That's the way that's the way I've always done these things, and I think that's one reason why they've been so well accepted. I think you're absolutely right about I, that. I, no, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, I, and I think even more so, the you know the the art of the novelization and um, is so intriguing, uh, particularly because how it's evolved since the emergence of home video. Because people forget before home video, you couldn't re-experience these things that you loved. You would read the book, and so when there was this plethora of new material, it enriched it so much, and. Um, you know, has the art of adapting material changed for you much or at all uh, since home video where people are going back and have access to watch movies that you, you know, again and again, I mean, you know, more recently you did the Star Trek 2009 and Star Trek Into Darkness novelizations. Has the process changed at all or is it the same same thing and none of that matters? I can't worry about what might come out uh, 12 months after I've turned in my manuscript. So the process is still the same. I get to make my own director's cut. Right. You know, I'm, a, I'm still a fan, too. I'm, this, I'm a combination of a professional writer and a 14-year-old fan. And I think that's another reason people like the ones that I do. They can tell that I appreciate and respect the material that I'm working on. Right. Even if it's not a good film, uh, I, I still approach it that, have to do the best I can with the material that I'm given. But nothing has changed. I have the screenplay. Well, the technology has changed, and my access to materials has gotten a lot better. But basically, I still put the screenplay on a stand off to the left of my computer, unless they email it to me, which is a very new thing. <laughs> then I have it on one side of the computer. I have my manuscript on the other side, and I can scroll the screenplay, and I can write the book. And that's basically it. I get some pre-production drawings, some stills from the film, if I'm lucky, uh, some designs for things like machines and devices, again, if I'm lucky, so that I can at least describe what things look like accurately. Right. And on that basis, I go from page one of the screenplay into the book. So that, ha that hasn't changed from the first one, which was Luana in 1973. <laughs> I keep throwing these dates out, and I forget that there are, I forget that there are people who, for whom the 20th century is to them like the 19th century was to me. Right. Covered wagons, yeah. Previous century, you know, you're 18 years old. You were born in the 2000s. What's right. the 19s? That doesn't make any sense. 
<laughs> I know it makes us all feel old, doesn't it? it well, it's, it, I don't feel old, but it's a strange feeling to look at dates and to give people dates. And you say something like 1973 to somebody, and you realize you're talking about the fan's father, grandfather. I mean, it's a, it's a, weird, it's a weird sort of thing. I could go on and on about, you know, about temporal distortion, but right. that's another that's another screenplay probably. So, <laughs> I want to ask you something else about 1973. But before I do that, you know, one of the great uh, uh, fallacies uh, that that Star Trek fans have they don't realize. You know, they, they, a lot of people suspected that you actually wrote the novelization of, of motion picture, which of course you didn't. Gene really did. And it's kind of insulting to you to think that he, you would have written that. Um, if any, for people who've read it but um you did write that 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 christmas um the black hole and earlier you alluded to the fact that whether something's good or bad you have to bring yourself to the material and try and make it as good as you can um i i i, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about sort of when you get saddled with an ip that maybe isn't that great you know and uh, you know how do you tackle it or you find what's great about it um, and uh, specifically, I don't know, you know, it's so many years later, if you remember anything about adapting the black hole, because it kind of is a guilty pleasure for us here on the show. Sure. Well, my memory's pretty good. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done the director should have shot you. Right. I, didn't, I didn't write all these little anecdotes down. They're either in the hard drive or they've been overwritten. Uh, but th there was enough there. As far as the black hole goes, uh, I knew the Ellenshaws were involved, Harrison and Peter Ellenshaw from the start, and I thought, wow, that's great. Two of the best matte painters in the history of Hollywood, so it's going to look good no matter what else is there. And then I look at the screenplay, and I thought, well, there are some things here that could be changed around a little bit, and what is this story really about anyway? And what I did was I went through, I explored a lot with the characters, Characters had room for development. A lot of room. I, thank you, David. Darren, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and you, you know, I got to explore aspects of the film that were not in the screenplay or in the film. Uh, things like various aspects of the ship, which was like so many Hollywood starships, totally impractical but very beautiful. Sure. Uh, you know, I never get over why people, humans or aliens, build gigantic starships that seem to be mostly empty on the inside. And are they playing football? Are they, you know, it's, it, you, it seems like an awful lot of effort to send space through space. Uh, but, you know, that Independence Day is another good example. Uh, the extended edition of Close Encounters is another good example. Sure. So I get to deal with things like that. You have a couple of automatons, robots in the film. And I get to deal with them a great deal more than the film actually does. Good robot here, bad robot there. Let's get back to the story kind of thing. I get to do a lot more with the robots. I get to fix, and this is a pet peeve of mine, uh, and anybody who's asked me to, to do a novelization or read one knows this, is the science. Now, I realize that I'm not working with a screenplay by Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, something Stephen Hawking put away for a while, and that's fine. Yeah. But I do believe that if you watch a film that's, that's designated science fiction, 
as opposed to Star Wars, which is science fantasy. But science fiction and Star Trek is science fiction. That the science should be as good as you can make it without radically interfering with the story. Right. When I do the book adaptation, I do that. So with something like the black hole, which has problems like people exposed to empty space without spacesuits, uh, we have that in Star Wars too, but Star Wars. Uh, but you don't do that in a science fiction film. Uh, uh, gigantic meteors that could destroy the entire island of Manhattan, punching a little hole in a ship and then being stopped by the opposite wall of the ship, and rolling down the empty center of the ship like a, a giant flaming bowling ball. Uh, things like that I get to fix. The biggest problem with the black hole, not to go on and on about it, was of course the ending, right. which the producers and the screenwriters never solved either. So all I could do with that was pretty much fiddle with the ending as best I could and try and make something that at least read well, even if it didn't make a whole, whole lot of sense. After no, excuse me. After I started working on the on the book version of Black Hole, and when I got through the screenplay, because I always give my opinion and always say what I think, which is why I do not work much in Hollywood or in politics, I sent a list of 70 short suggestions for things in the film that I thought could be fixed in post-production cheaply. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's no time to make big changes, but these were little things. Mm -hmm. Like... Uh, you know, taking out, doing something to take out the wires that you can see in a couple of shots holding up the robots. Uh, rationalizing the, the giant meteor or comet. Little things. And I, without expecting any remuneration or credit or anything, because that's the fan part of me. We all do that. Sure. So I, I got it sent into Disney to the production and nothing happened. And I went back to work and forgot about it. And some time went by after the release of the film. And I was talking to a contact of mine at Disney, and we were discussing among other things in the film, and I mentioned it, and I said, I guess nothing ever happened with that couple of pages of suggestions I sent. And he said, oh, no, they, they had a big meeting about it, and there was yelling and screaming. And, but, of course, nothing was ever done about it. None of the suggestions were ever adopted. And I think there were two problems with that. One, I didn't ask for any money. And people in Hollywood are immediately suspicious if you don't ask for anything. It's kind of like, true. what do you really want? And I just wanted a better film. And the other thing was, uh, I probably shouldn't have ended the letter of suggestions by saying that if you don't want to listen to me, please take some people over to Burbank High School and talk to the senior physics class. <laughs> yeah. Now, I could have left the snark off, but I just couldn't help. <laughs> Burning. If, you, if you've seen the film, you know why. But I, having said all of this, I did the best book I could. There are people who love the book. And that's, when you're working with something like that and you get a compliment on a project like that, that's about the best kind of compliment. Because mm. you did your job. Absolutely. What I, was your solution to the ending? That, that, that uh, ambiguous, bizarre ending? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, don't go, I don't go back and reread my books, and I, I specifically. Yeah, didn't you do were it just telling me. <laughs> specifically, you had the black hole, because I was doing the director should have shot you, and I would go back and I would reread the ending of the black hole, which didn't completely satisfy me, of course, but it was the best I could do under the circumstances, 
And then that would occupy my mind for days thinking, well, how could I have made that better? And I don't need to waste that hard drive space. Right. They're, they're not, you're not doing your director's cut uh, of that book. It's done. Yeah. I, so, I wanna, okay. I want to move us back a couple of years before the black hole to uh, yes. hearing about your first involvement with uh, Lucas and uh, the novelization of the Star Wars script. How did that, uh, how did that come about? Okay. Uh, story I've told many times, but I'm happy to tell it again. Thank you. Uh, well, <laughs> I, had, I was in the middle of doing the Star Trek logs. Mm -hmm. I think I'd done four or five of them at that point. I'd also done two other novelizations for Del Rey, Luana, which was a really terrible Italian film, and Dark Star, which mm. was this student film sure. that has become a genuine cult classic because it was the student film of John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon mm -hmm. and Greg Egan and Ron Cobb worked on it. Yep. And you look at the credits, it's astounding. Uh, and on the basis of all that work, Judy Lynn, who, being a real sharp gal, again, had bought the rights to this unknown, unfinished science fiction film called Star Wars, and needed somebody to adapt it into book form, and because I had done that successfully for the company already, and because I had a Master of Fine Arts in Film from UCLA, and she knew I knew my way around a, a screenplay, asked if I would be willing to do it, and I knew... George's work from THX 1138, and of course, American Graffiti. So I said, sure. I knew nothing about the film. Nobody did. Yeah. And so they made arrangements, and they sent me over to the office of George's lawyer, a gentleman named Tom Pollock, who I think later became president of Universal. Of Universal, yeah. yeah. Hollywood Boulevard. And we had a nice chat. And in the course of that, I seem to remember him saying that, or somebody else said that, Somebody connected with uh, the Star Wars project had read a book of mine called Ice Rigger, which was my third original novel for Del Rey, and thought it was similar in spirit, completely different story, similar in spirit to this little film that George was making. So Tom decided that I was not an axe murderer and set up a time for me to go out to Industrial Light and Magic, which at that time was in a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, sure. and then it's from where I grew up. I knew exactly where it was. And I went over there one bright, sunny day to meet George and couldn't park in the parking lot because it was full of sawhorses with firewood on top, full of all of these plastic pieces that were actually the, the trench run from the film. Mm -hmm. The pieces were too big. They had no room left inside the building. So they were out in the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, again, no cell phone cameras in those days. So no pictures. And I went inside and uh, was kind of wandering around. Somebody said, George will be out to talk to you in a minute. And looking at these people putting these little ships together, cannibalizing hundreds of old model kits of World War II ships and planes and such. Uh, it looked like, you know, kids' time at the uh, at elementary school, only with adults making models. And then one guy saw me walking around and said, hey, you want to score you? And I introduced myself. He said, you want to see something really interesting? I've got the first computer-controlled camera in the history of motion pictures. And he brought me over, and he's showing the camera, and he pridefully explaining it all to me. And I'm just thinking, you know, where's George? Who is this guy? <laughs> i, I got to go back to work. And uh, it was John Dykstra trying to explain his camera to me. And you think back on these things, and it's like, boy, you're really stupid. And 
Anyway, we went in and uh, still waiting for George, and they had this green screen set up. Uh, I didn't know what a green screen was, but I learned. And the original model of the Millennium Falcon on a gimbal mount, shooting pictures. I didn't want to see that. I just wanted to talk to George. I really wasted some important historical time there. George finally came out, and we met each other, and we hit it off. We had a nice chat. Uh, to this day, he's the nicest guy I've ever met in the movies. And he showed me around like a kitten, you know, this is his toy shop. Here's the Death Star, it's this beach ball size thing. And we talked a little bit, we had a nice chat and uh, he decided I wasn't an ax murderer. So I signed the contract to do the novelization of the film plus a sequel book, an original sequel. Uh, the only restriction being put on that, about the game Splinter of the Mind's Eye, was that it had to be a story that could be filmed on a low budget yeah, George's idea being that if the film Star Wars was neither a big success or a big failure, he could make a sequel film on a lower budget, utilizing as many of the costumes and sets and stuff in the first film as possible. That's why I set Splinter on a fog-shrouded planet and had a lot of it take place underground. really cuts down on the background costs. No CGI in those days. Uh, and that was how my work with Star Wars to that point came about. Many years later, I did a, another book, and that's, well, a couple of books, a novelization of The Force Awakens and an original novel called The Approaching Storm, which is one of two bridge novels between episodes one and two. When did they let you know that it was going to be a, a ghostwriting job? In the original contract, it didn't bother me. It's not my universe. It's not my story. Uh, sure, it would have been nice to have my name on the book from the start, but Completely, again, if you're professional, sure. you do these things. There are professionals in rock music history who have ghostwritten music for kings and lords who love music, but couldn't write music. Maybe they, uh, maybe they could hum a tune, and they'd give it to somebody like Mozart who'd make sure. an oratorical out of it. I had no problems with that. I did have to lie for many years, sure. right to the faces of friends and family and everybody else, that was the hardest part of the whole thing. I imagine. And then uh, it was let slip in the first real book on George's work called Skywalking the Life of the Times of George right. Lucas. By, by Dale, Dale Pollock. Yeah. Dale. He inadvertently had mentioned that I had this guy had ghostwritten the novelization. At that point, it seemed kind of silly to continue to deny it. And my agency got a release from Lucasfilm saying that I Yes, subsequent to that, George has been very good about it, even writing about it in the introduction, I think, to one edition of Splinter, acknowledging that I go for the book. But at the time, it was important to him, I'm sure, to be acknowledged as the sole author of this project, sure. in which he had basically uh, thrown his whole career. And I completely understood all of it. Well, and it was a unique situation because, of course, the book was released so far in advance of the movie, so he probably, I would imagine, wouldn't want any confusion that it was someone else's universe that he was adapting at that point. I mean, it was almost, it, to those who didn't know better, they would almost think it was a work of original uh, science fiction, not realizing that the movie was, was you know, six months a year later. Now, that could um, have been very, very, very confusing for everybody. And a lot of that, I think, is... Uh, to be credited to a wonderful guy named Charlie Lippincott. Yeah, who we sure. just lost a couple weeks who ago. passed away recently, yeah. He's very recently passed away. 
who was the marketing genius behind Star Wars and responsible really for everything. Well, you guys know it's when you talk about that, but uh, the idea of publishing this novelization months before the film actually comes out and nobody knows anything about it was really a, a wonderful way of promoting the film before you could show the film. And in many respects, change the way many things are released, not just novelizations. Nowadays, I'm sorry, they like movie studios don't want to do that anymore. Right. Because everybody has internet access. And if you release something, anything, six months before a project comes out, then it's all over the internet within 24 hours. And there's no way to maintain secrecy. Plus, you don't make any money from whatever it is you're selling six right. months before. Yeah. And, and, and it was so forward-thinking uh, as well with Splinter of the Mind's Eye, even though it did not provide the template for the sequel because it was a blockbuster success, I'm, the book was a huge success. I mean, I remember the, the excitement and, and uh, you know, of, of all of us who had fallen in love with this movie. And this was like the first piece of licensed material that was so, you know, you were so excited to get your hands on it. It was so compelling. And, I mean, it's such a, an iconic... Uh, uh, book and of course that beautiful Ralph McQuarrie artwork on the cover as well is so memorable. So I mean, and you had your name on that, and I, obviously it all you know was really uh, you know such an important part I think of Star Wars history in, in retrospect. Well, it was it was fun. It was an odd way, but not a difficult way necessarily to approach writing a novel, keeping in back of my mind the notion that it might be filmed and have to be done on a little. But there were several things about the book as people have picked up over decades and talked about at infinitum the fact that Han Solo is not in the book. That was because Harrison Ford had not signed on for any future use of his likeness or so forth. So no Han Solo, pretty much for me anyway, meant no Chewbacca. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was basically Luke and Leia and later on Darth Vader. So I had to develop a, a number of original characters. Uh, it was an original science fiction novel, utilizing Star Wars background and Star Wars character. And I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I wish I could have jumped forward uh, 30 or 40 years and picked up on the true relationship between Luke and Leia, but George didn't know what it was at that time either. So when people who are 16 years old read the book and criticize it for reasons like that, it doesn't bother me because eventually you read your history you find out why Alexander really did invade India and that sort of thing. And, and it had an amazing scene of the confrontation between Leia and Vader, which I still remember uh, vividly reading. Um, it, was, it was great, so thank you for that. It's funny how things work out. You know, at, for, not only at that time, but in films thereafter for a while, there's no indication that Leia has any kind of force powers whatsoever. Right. And yet, here was this thing in the book, which I just put there because it worked story-wise, yeah. without any idea that it might jump forward far, far into the future and, lo and behold, provide an explanation in retrospect for something that happened in the first sequel. <laughs> so some, sometimes, sometimes, you get lucky with these things. Sure. Like Murray Leinster's story, A Logic Named Joe, which came out in Astounding in 1946, 45, 46. Hey, completely accurately predicts not only the internet, but the home computer. Mm. I mean, it's a crazy short story. If you haven't read it, you really you really need to read it. This is, this is at a time when the president of IBM 
when he was asked what he thought was the worldwide market potential for computers, said six. Yeah. Yet here's this amazing story, but science fiction can do that sometimes. It does. Well, we talked about someone that you liked quite a bit in George Lucas. Let's go back to someone you didn't like in retrospect. I, we have this is a Star Trek podcast, and uh, let's okay. go back to Je- Genesis two and your first meeting Roddenberry and that initial love fest that obviously soured over time. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you came into the orbit, no pun intended, of Gene Roddenberry and uh, the origin of Robots Return and. Uh, the, the, the story that, that uh, and it's quite a saga after that, but, but starting, you wrote, you, you were developing a teleplay for Genesis 2, which they anticipated would go to series based on the, uh, the pilot. Of course, that never happened. But uh, take us back to, to that time and tell us a little bit about that uh, event in your life. Okay, Mr. Peabody. Uh, <laughs> Turn the Wayback Machine on. The, the 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 kids who were born in 2000 aren't going to get that either. But okay. No, but that's that's, that's the fun of things like this. Is like Mr. Hoop. So let them, yeah, let look them it up. Discover, Google it. Yeah, look it up. Exactly. Look it up. <laughs> uh, I've been asked, probably, well, not probably, based on my work with the Star Trek logs and possibly the Peter Pan records as well, mm-hmm. to contribute some treatments for potential one-hour TV. TV shows for this revised series, which was to be called eventually Genesis 2. Lots of other writers were asked to do the same thing. So I submitted three, one of which was based on a two-page story idea called Robots Return that Roddenberry handed me. He said, gave me this and said, see if you can make anything out of this. So I worked on that. That was one of the three ideas that I submitted. And in the course of this, uh, we're all getting along fine. And I remember one day down at Norway Productions on the Paramount lot, Roddenberry, who's taller than I am, put his arm around me and said, you know, you remind me of me when I was your age. I, I'm going to, I think I can help you. And I, uh, I held off pointing out that I had published, you know, a dozen books or so at this point. And I felt that I was reasonably confident as a writer. And I'm a tactful sort of person, and I didn't want to lose a potentially lucrative gig. So time went on, and then it was decided that they were going to open when Genesis 2 became the new Star Trek series. We're going to open the new Star Trek series with a two-hour movie for TV. And it was decided that my treatment for a one-hour show was detailed enough to carry two hours. So I was given the task of expanding the treatment to carry a two-hour show. And then suddenly, for various reasons, which have been researched in depth by Star Trek fans over the, over the decades, Paramount decided, no, <coughs> they weren't going to bring the show back. They would make a big-budget movie. This, of course, was largely because of Star Wars and Close Encounters financial success. The apocryphal story is that the young daughter of Charles Bluthorn, who was the chairman of uh, Gulf and Western, which was the giant conglomerate that owned Paramount, went up to him one day and said, Daddy, why can't we have a Star Trek movie? And whether you believe that or not, things, things like that happen in Hollywood all the time. So for whatever reason, it suddenly became a big deal, a big project, at which point I became an instant non-person. I had no pull, no ranking in the movie business. 
But I understood. My uncle had been a very successful producer in Hollywood and television. And I understood fairly well how the business worked. And it was kind of like, okay, I did my job. And I went back to writing my books. And then one day, this is all well known and well documented now. When a film is getting ready to uh, be put together and for final release, the credits have to be filed with various skills. Director's credit has to be submitted to the Director's Guild and so on for approval so that if anybody wants to challenge these proposed credits, they have time to do so. And I had seen the shooting script for the film, ones that the actors carry around with them, and on the front it says, a story by Alan Dean Foster and Gene Roddenberry, screenplay by Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingston. And uh, the credits were then filed with the guilds, and I have to get a copy of that. And the credits, the proposed credits, say story by Gene Roddenberry, screenplay by Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingston. Uh -huh. And there's an omission there that immediately caught my eye. Where was my name? So I called my agent, an old line Hollywood agent named Ilsan, would come over to the U.S. with Paul Kohner from Germany, been around a long time. She said, don't get excited. This is just the way the business works. They filed their set of credits, we'll file ours. And I said, and I'm usually a very low-key person, I said, well, that's not the way I work. If they're going to be like this, I'm going to file for sole story credit. Because I wrote 98% of that treatment, and I can prove it. So she said, okay. So that's what we did. I'm stomping around our house in Big Bear Lake in California, and my wife is trying to keep my blood pressure down. And she, you know, and, um, finally, I get a call back from my agent from Ilsa, and she said uh, they're not going to contest our filing because Roddenberry is in La Costa, a resort in Southern California recuperating from overwork and he can't be bothered with things like this and the epiphany came I now understood how traditional Hollywood works it's all run by a bunch of 12 year old boys and my wife looked at me at this point and she said okay then you sure you want to live here to be near these people because I had grown up with most of my life in Southern California yeah. and I said you know what because she hated Los Angeles the movie business a small town in Texas called Moran. Let's go find some place we both like, and I'll write my books, and nobody will bother me. If something happens with the film industry, fine, and if not, that's fine too. And that precipitated our move to Prescott, Arizona, in 1981. And that's the whole story of my involvement with Star Wars. Got a call from Paramount that we'd like you to come to the premiere at the Smithsonian in Washington, and I. I'd never been to the Smithsonian, much less the Air and Space Museum. So you can imagine what a temptation that was for me. And I thought about it. I mean, they were going to pay for the limo and the, the whole bit. Sure. Red carpet deal. And I thought about it real hard. And I, said, I finally decided, I said, no, we're not going. I may meet people that I will be unpleasant with. A lot of people have nothing to do with my situation work really hard make this movie. I don't want to do anything to disrupt the premiere. And strange as it seems, I actually have a tiny spot for multi-billion dollar corporations. Paramount had a lot of money riding on the film. I didn't want to do anything to, you know, disrupt the box office potential either. 
So I stayed home, and we stayed home in Big Bear, and I did not go to the and I never spoke to Gene Roddenberry again. I've spoken to his son, who's a swell guy, Rod. Yeah, Rod's great. He knows, he knows my story. It has nothing to do with him. And, uh, you know, we got along fine as a result of that. So that's the story of my involvement with, with the movie. Did you work much early on with um, Harold Livingston and, and Poville at all, or was it, were you dealing mostly with Roddenberry? Uh, I was dealing entirely with Roddenberry. I never met Years I can remember John Colville. I did meet Harold Livingston once or twice um, for reasons that shall go unspoken. I'm going to discuss Mr. Livingston. And uh, the only other thing I can say is that the first five minutes of that movie are all mine. Exactly the way I wrote it in the treatment. Uh, I'm responsible for making Kirk an admiral in the film. I'm responsible for getting the name of a World War II Japanese battleship in the film, mm -hmm. Combo. And there's a few other little bits and pieces, but basically, once a lot of money and a lot of ego became involved, uh, the last thing they want hanging around is another writer. If you can get rid of them, as many writers as you can, uh, the producers are happy. So they got rid of me. Uh, it was not, it was not a pleasant experience. I'm very happy to have done it. I'm very happy that I've got five minutes that I can stand up and say, "Hey, I wrote that." I'm proud of that. And right, right, right. That's that's about it. It's a shame, of course, that they were uh, date constrained. The film had to be delivered to the theaters by a certain day, and everybody knows about the problems with the special effects and how Doug Trumbull and his crew worked thirty hours a day trying to whip those into some kind of shape. And on balance, I think it holds up pretty well. If you went to a major Hollywood studio today and said, I'd like to make a film about the next step in the evolution of mankind. <laughs> you, you wouldn't get as far as the executive bathroom. No. Yeah. In, the, in that respect, it's real Star Trek. It absolutely it's, is. It absolutely and those is. ideas and such are all there in, in the treatment that I wrote. Yeah. And a lot of that did stay in the film. So that's the was movie. It, was it hard for it to make the transition from an episode of Genesis 2 into Star Trek, or was it pretty seamless in terms of, uh, 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 you know, moving it from, from, from what Genesis 2 was into Star Trek? Do you remember? Yeah, I mentioned the name Genesis 2, but as far as I know, when my involvement began, it was called, it was to be a revived Star Trek TV series. Hmm, I never okay. heard the name Genesis, never even heard the name Genesis 2 Interesting. until much, much later. Interesting. So, that's it fascinating. Bob, that, no, go, go ahead. Because that, that, that time is so is so uh, undocumented with how you know they were constantly in development for a new TV series and and other versions of uh, films that they were going to do, and it's all sort of uh, squashed into a uh, hearsay uh, 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 story. Uh, but it's always good to hear uh, something directly from uh, who it happened to. Well, that's why I wrote the, the director sh should have shot you. Because if you live long enough, you become history. Yeah. And yeah. I knew that people would want to know something. Well, you know, what was it like working on Star Wars or Star Trek or Alien? Right. And all of these things are starting to recede into the mists of time. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I wanted to get as much as I could remember down on paper. And I can say conclusively, I've had to say this dozens and dozens of times over the years, I didn't even know there was going to be a novelization of the film. Right. Much less had anything to do with it. I had 
absolutely nothing to do with it. Part of the confusion might arise from the fact that according to guild requirements, my name as the author of the story is on the front of the novelization. Right. It's along with other credits, it says story by. So people might look at that and think, oh, well, it's obvious. It had to have happened. I had nothing whatsoever to do with the book. I, I just have a but tiny I, little... I, I, I just have a tiny little story about uh, the novelization for Alien that I think you might find interesting. Um, I had... Uh, you know, I was, uh, what, uh, 12 or 13 at the time, uh, and um, I had seen the novelization in the stores, and I, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, flitted through it and, and read some interesting, you know, juicy passages, and I thought, oh my God, this is great, and uh, uh, my mother wouldn't let me buy it. Um, but later, uh, it was offered through the Scholastic uh, Book Club in school, and so... I got it then. However, uh, it's not the same version. <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, it kids, was. Uh, you know, it kids. was for kids, <laughs> and uh, they took out all Wait. your magnificent description of what it was like for uh, Kane to see the face hugger come up on his uh, visor and start uh, acid eating through it, and it uh, uh, getting onto his face, which was amazingly horrific and wonderful to read. All of that was gone in the scholastic version. So they still do this stuff, Darren. It's, it's, I got a, I, after I had done Aliens the novelization, some time went by and I got a fan mail, fan letter from somebody saying, you know, how, what's wrong with you? How could you, how could you censor the, you know, the dialogue like this? And I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and only then did I go and find out, get a copy of the book. And, and open it up. I had copies, I just didn't open them. Yeah. And find out that they had bowlerized uh, the book. I had kept all of Cameron's dialogue exactly as he wrote it, and in fact had added to it, and they'd taken all the swear words out. Yeah. Because I was told later, uh, when I could get myself under control again, um, I was told later that they thought it might make the book more saleable to teenagers is really hilarious yeah teenagers and i'm like these are space marines yeah you know they are not going to a a, a, a regency tea party yeah. they are marines they don't talk like this they talk like they talked in the film yeah and nobody at warner books had ever said a word to me that they were going to do that of course never mind for the kids edition for the, the regular general edition Right. Because obviously I would have reacted the way I'm kind of reacting right now. It's like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> I would use a stronger four-letter word. <laughs> are you doing? These are Marines. Which wouldn't <laughs> matter so much, except that my name is on the book. Sure. I end up looking like the idiot. Yeah, and like, you get you get the blame for uh, the censorship, which yeah, is ludicrous. Exactly. And if they had mentioned this to me before they released the book, I would have raised holy hell and done everything I possibly could. Which is why they didn't mention it. Of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sometimes the book business can be the same way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really interested in your new book um, and the whole Liberty Valance print the legend of some of these stories and, and, and sort of debunking some of these myth, myths that have uh, grown up around these films and actually... Uh, 
um, it's such a great perspective, and, and and as soon as that that's announced, uh, I, I'm 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 going to order a copy immediately. Um, is can you tell us tell us if you if you don't mind just sharing share a little tea tea if you'll tease something else from the book maybe that might be interesting from one of these movies that uh, you know one of, one of these genre movies that that is so misunderstood perhaps. Well, I can give you the source of the title of the book. Please. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. I was asked to do the novelization of The Chronicles of Riddick. A film that I worked on. <laughs> ah. So, well, you'll find this particularly interesting then. So, I, Fitcher, started work on the book, got the screenplay and stills and stuff. And my agent called one day and she said, uh, We just talked to Universal. They want to send you up to Vancouver, Canada, to see the film in production, walk on the set, talk to people. And I had been on movie sets and I know how that works. It's, uh, like watching paint dry. That's it. Good, good description. And they had no desire. So I told my agent that I don't really want to do this. And she said, Well, they're very insistent and they think it'll make for a better book. And so I thought, well, two days in Vancouver. Never been to Vancouver. Not two days in. Uh, what am I going to insult today? It's, it's not two days in the back of South Dakota or something. So I went, and the first night at around midnight, I had dinner with David Tui, who the director, writer of the film, who was barely conscious enough to eat his food, which I completely understood. It didn't bother me at all. I, I know what he was going through. Next day, I got up, wandered around the set, looked at everything. They put me in makeup and costume and everything, and I was an extra in the film. In the film. Uh, one of the big crowd scenes. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I enjoyed that. That was fun. And then the next day, I'm doing pretty much the same stuff, and a runner comes up to me and says, Vin would like to talk to you. Vin being Vin Diesel, not only the star of the film, but one of the executive producers. Right. So I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I've got to go talk to an actor. And it took me to the production trailer, and one whole wall of the inside of the production trailer is wallpapered with Frazetta posters. Now, looking at this, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy's a fan. This might be okay. So I'm then led into his living quarters, his mobile home that he's living in while the films are good. And a couple of minutes later, he shows up, and we hit it off immediately. Like, oh, you're a fan. Oh. Your fan, remember this? Remember that? I mentioned the Rosetta poster. And we just went on. We were both uh, did bodybuilding. I competed a little bit, and uh, there was that. And we just were having a great time. And after about five ten minutes, he's got a copy of the script with him. He says, "Do you mind if I ask you some questions about the script?" Uh, although he he probably said, "Do you mind if I ask you some questions about the script?" And I said, "Sure." Again, being that honest, straightforward person that I am. So he'd ask me a question, and I'd say, well, I think this, and he, he would go, that's exactly the way I see it. This went on for about another 10, 15 minutes. Every time he would ask me a question, we would be in complete agreement on how we would see a scene, or a character, or dialogue, or anything else. So left, went back, wandered around some more, went home, went back to work on the book. Very short while later, you get a phone call, and it's Vice President so-and-so, I'm not going to mention his name, from Universal. Is this Alan Dean Foster? I said, yes. 
that you are not to have any further contact with anyone associated with the film The Chronicle of the Riddick. Talk to anyone associated with the film The Chronicle of the Riddick. You are not to, not to, not to. And I took this for about three, four minutes, and when my shock finally wore off, I interrupted him and said, look, I am an honest, straightforward person. If someone asks me a question, I'm going to answer it to the best of my ability. And I do not work for you. I do not work for Universal. I work for Random House. I hung up on him. And he didn't call back. And I'm kind of like, well, what the hell was that all about? And I went back to work on the book. Time passes. The book comes out. And I'm talking to someone associated with the film, who I also won't name. And told him this story and he said, well, I know what happened. This is like Disney all over again in a way. I said, what? And he said, there, there were some disagreements from time to time on the set between Vin Diesel and David Tui. And at one or two points, uh, Vin would say, well, I've talked to the guy who's writing the book and he agrees with me on this. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. And more time passes, and I'm I'm in Westwood in California at the Cheesecake Factory on San Vicente, talking to an old, great old friend of mine, a very well well known producer, William Cutchin, whom the director should have shot you is dedicated to. And I told him the story. And his eyes got wide. He said, You did what? And he said, I, I, when somebody asks me a question, I answer it to the best of my ability. I said, I can be tactful, but I'm honest. He said, you don't understand. He said, if I'd been the director at that point on the film and I'd had a gun, I would have shot you on the spot. <laughs> and, and I'm like, why? What did I do? What did I do? He said, that was probably Universal's biggest film of the year, cost-wise. Mm -hmm. And every day is costing tens of thousands of dollars. And nobody has any time for any holdups. Yeah. For whatever reason, valid or otherwise, you push forward in the production. And I'm like, oh, well, that's what that was all about. And that's where the title of the book comes from. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your anecdote, Mark. That's hysterical. I'm anxious to hear more when I read it. Hopefully, some great stories about the thing and Last Starfighter and so many great oh, yeah. movies that you adapted. They're all in there. Yeah, fantastic. And even uh, Moana's in there. Nice. <laughs> well, look, it's it's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you, and and we appreciate you taking the time. And I'll tell you, I really hope one day. Um, they put the log series back in print because uh, it's one of the few things uh, that I made the mistake of not holding on to from uh, my my youth. And one day I came across the collection at Barnes and Noble, and uh, I didn't get it that day. And I said, "Oh, I'll have to get it the next time I'm here." And I, I've never had the opportunity since. So uh, I, I hope that you know, with everything else of Star Trek being. Uh, re-released and reissued and repackaged at the log series which is worth that kind of uh, attention gets uh, gets uh, uh, you know uh, put back into print one of these days it'd be, a it'd be nice it would be nice to see that i have no idea who owns the rights it'd be nice to see the peter pan stories i did yeah. seven I did seven of them show up as a little audio book or something i think that would yeah, be great I, it, you know it, doing those again with uh you know modern production and uh you know perhaps uh, uh, more uh, interesting actors in them, would be fascinating. 
honestly, yeah. because they're they're great stories. Thank you. They 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 are. It's it's such a unique phenomenon. The '70s, those little audio dramas. It was like you know we grew up uh, to a certain extent listening to radio dramas. You know, at least in our case, concurrent with TV, but. Um, but then the, the in the 70s you had all these great uh, I book and records space 1999 the book and record sets and comic book and record sets and and they were always terrific and again before home video it was a way to experience these things that we were passionate about and new stories and new adventures in a really cool way and when there were people like you working on them they they had the great promise of being something special so uh again uh, great talking to you thanks for taking the time and uh can't wait to uh i can't wait to see the read the director should have shot you and then you also have your next uh um fantasy novel coming out um i'm gonna butcher the name on november 18th so why don't you uh i can't read my own mandringa mandringa yeah you only a mildly but you more you trimmed it more than butchered it uh it's mandringa from wordfire press and the director should have shot you is from centipede Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much. My pleasure, guys. Well, I thought that was great. It was was so so great. That was so much fun talking to someone that, uh, you know, we have known through reading, you know, and uh, he he was, he was, you know, the first journalist of the wills and uh, the, the, the wonderful, the wonderful take he gave on you know, the Star Trek log series and expanding those episodes is so much fun. And I think uh, the way he did it is is really should be actually studied because it's it's really fascinating. And I love that he realized early on that what you want is a little more context mm-hmm. and a little more than you saw in the movie. You know, sometimes the novelizations have... A- little more because the, the 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 cut of the movie isn't locked so they adapt scenes maybe that were uh, end up being trimmed but he made a point of like adding scenes and developing things and and, and like stuff that should have been in the movie fleshing out and, characters and fleshing and, and fleshing out characters and i love that and i think that's why we really you know it was the mark of quality it was the good housekeeping seal of a novelization yeah. you knew if, like alan dean foster wrote it because i remember there were a lot of books at that time that i read that weren't as good yeah, like Richard Con was it Con, you know, and at Con, not Con, right, right, the guy who did who had, and then and also Kazinkel who did um, E. T. Cotswinkle, Cotswinkle, yeah, yeah, you know, where who was a medic, I think, right. a doctor who ended up falling into it. But um, what I loved about Foster is he just brought so much detail, and and he was a fan. And yeah. you could sense that. Now, like, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, Vonda McIntyre actually did a really nice job on Star Trek two mm-hmm. and 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 three. Um, but you know, she was somebody else who really seemed to get the whole idea of how how you do novelizations. Sure. But she also was a fan, knew how to write Star Trek. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's funny because the novelization is such a unique phenomenon, isn't it? The the idea of adapting a motion picture into prose, and it uh, to me it really is a relic of the home video of pre home video age, mm-hmm. or maybe it was yeah, because I I bought so many of those books growing sure, up. Sure, sure. And and I mean, I remember, I know a lot of you, you, you like you and Rob and you know, read some of them before you even saw the movie. Absolutely. I wouldn't do that, but I would hold on. <laughs> and as soon as I saw the movie, I'd come home and just devour these books right. because it was a way to like experience the movie again. Right. And you know, I think once home video hit, at least for me, 
I know they continue for a lot of people to still be very popular. But for me, I think once once I was able to start taping stuff on HBO or rent stuff at the video store or um, purchase, you know, a, a movie like Star Trek Two, my interest in um, novelization started to wane. Sure. You know, just because I could experience the movie again. But I think a really great novelization has its own value. But I think I think movie. to be to be honest, I think that the the development of home video went hand in hand with the fact that they didn't want to put so much effort into doing the novelizations. There there wasn't uh, there wasn't uh, the same amount of time that they committed to them. It wasn't the same uh, status of writers that they would assign to them. So I think both of those had a lot to do with the the uh, downfall of them. Well, I, I think also the way that movies are produced has affected novelizations because, of course, you know, when we were living in the photochemical world and, and a different kind of post-process and negative cutting, you had to lock a picture much earlier. Mm-hmm. So there was time for a novelist to, to, to actually write as a novelization. Now, a movie... Is it can can it's still being cut? Sometimes they're being cut up until the press screening a week before. Yeah. And I've heard of movies recently where new visual effects. I'm not talking about cats. I'm not going for the easy joke. I'm talking about like literally where visual effects are uh, are, are dropped in digitally week two. after the press screening. Yeah. yeah, or even in week yeah. two where they're still making changes yep. in the cut. So like that creates a whole different set of obstacles for someone. And it's something we didn't talk to him about. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been interesting. I wish we had. Um, hey, let's get him back. Get him back. <laughs> Bring him back. Um, but <laughs> but we got back to live long, fortunately. Oh, but um, but but anyway, um, and I'm glad we could also debunk, and we've done this many times on the show, that he had nothing to do with the Star Trek the motion picture yes. novelization. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fallacy. It's I'm, a, really, it's a I'm really glad to hear that as well. I, I, I wanted to eliminate that story immediately because uh, he had nothing at all to do with that wonderful novel of Star Trek, the motion picture. And I'm, di- I'm dying to read his book, this, um, oh my God, uh, the yeah. director should have shot you. I mean, his stories sound amazing. I mean, we talked a little bit about stuff like, you know, Black Hall, but I mean, I can't wait. I mean, he Some did out too much. He did not high. Not, not for me. <laughs> Crawl, Last Starfighter. Yeah. He did Starman, Pale Rider. Yeah. He even adapted a video game, The, the Dig. And, you know, of course, he did adapt 2009 and Into Darkness, which we didn't really talk to about much, but, you know, whatever. So uh, Scott Mance can interview him for his show. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, that, that was really, really, really interesting stuff. So um, we hope that you, know, you had uh, as much fun listening as we did. Clearly we did. Clearly we did. And if you're somebody who hasn't read the log series, seek it out. Seek out McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> new uh, books and new yeah. reading experiences because they, they're really they, they they add a lot to the experience of the of watching the animated series um but that's it for for us this week the good news is i guess it's good news we'll be back next saturday with an all-new episode of inglorious Drexperts. and if you enjoy listening to us you might enjoy watching us even more on the free electric now app you can download that from your favorite app store Watch us on Roku, on, on Apple TV, on your phone, on your iPad, on your tablet, where, wherever, wherever. You can watch <laughs> us at the beach. You can watch us in a tree. You can watch us at the quarry. I don't know. I can't rhyme like Dr. Seuss. You, but the, the, the point is you can watch us, and it doesn't cost you anything. And you can watch Best News and Movies Never Made, the 430 movie. You can watch episodes of Leverage and Librarians and all this. And it's 100% free. 
So uh, check us out. Download the Electric Now app. And uh, I want to say a very special thanks to our producer, Natalie Miscali. Um, of course, our sound mixer, who uh, I, he has a, a, an immense task trying to make him good and over Zoom. I mean, I, I feel I, when I listen to the episodes, I'm amazed he's able to make them sound as good as they do. Yeah, um, and we're so grateful uh, to Bill, particularly now that we're um, recording these in all over the world and in different pieces and all kinds of nonsense. And uh, I want to thank our, our production coordinator and our research consultant, Peter Holmstrom, who is instrumental in lining up Alan Dean Foster for today's uh, uh, show. And uh, uh, our um, production coordinator, um, Zach Raggetts. And uh, we will be back next week, next Saturday, with an all-new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. But until then... Keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.